Chris. Welcome back. We are doing it again. We're doing it again. Welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. And this week, ladies and gentlemen, my name is still Nathan. <laughs> my name is still David. I there didn't know we go. I was, change I, that, I, I was getting ready to skip it, and then I, I made a hard U-turn back to introducing ourselves. You know, I'm, yes. we're good at this. We're very professional. Um, yes. yes. Uh, our professionalism aside, this week, uh, there are no current events because we just tried to do an intro to an episode and recorded a whole goddamn current events episode. So you have already yeah. heard that at this point. It was the full current events episode on Ukraine with a uh, minor, uh, not minor, but a step over onto the atrocious trans legislation going on in Texas. Um, So there will be no current events this week. So not that there aren't any, but you're just going to get a catch up on them next week, hopefully. That being said, we are going to be starting with Neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah, and we are starting on Chapter 17, New Industries, The Effects on Primary Producing Countries. The Second World War, fought as it was on an almost global scale, called for scientific and inventive genius and unprecedented measures, all towards one end, that of destruction. The need for vast quantities of equipment and the supply services that were ancillary to the purpose of wiping out people in cities animated, as peace never did, governmental support for investigation and research into faster and more rational means of mass production. The United States, which became the prime arsenal and provider for its Western allies, was naturally foremost in adjusting its industrial machinery to the new methods at the close of the war. Since then, the demands made by the reconstruction of ruined cities and the rebuilding of disjointed economies have accelerated the trend. The policy of containment, military adventures such as Vietnam, Cyprus, and Korea, Cold War stockpiling, and the race and rocket assembly and spaceship building have added their quota. Automation and the use of electronics are fast spreading, and in America, taking hold wherever large-scale production finds it more profitable to replace human labor by push-button, thinly-manned mechanisms. The resulting tremendous bound forward in productive potential has created an increasing demand for the base materials of industry, and there has sprung up a rapidly enlarging assortment of synthetic raw materials, many of them supplementing natural products and often replacing them. This is having an effect upon the market prices of natural primary products, a fact given prominence by the chairman of Union Minerae, Duhout Katanga, at the 1964 shareholders meeting. The London Metal Exchange, the body which still operates the world prices of metals, is largely under the influence of the leading producers and processors like Union Minerae itself, and its associate, Rhodesian Selection Trust, Conzinc Rio Tinto, Amalgamated Metal Corporation, Minerae's et Mato, and London Tin Company. Coca users, for their part, are constantly threatening the producing countries that they will use synthetic substitutes and rubber-growing countries are up against the increasing use of the artificial product. Just as the high quotations and fluctuations of primary products are influenced by the monopoly producers, so the threat of the use of synthetics is no idle warning, since the controllers of the natural products are also the major producers of the artificial materials. For the same reason, the producers of synthetics will be careful not to to, compete too vigorously with the natural products. For example, it has been alleged that Dunlop was slow to begin synthetic rubber manufacturing because of their large plantation interests in Malaya. All four of the American rubber-producing giants, Firestone, BF Goodrich, Goodyear, and U.S. Rubber, are engaged in the production of artificial rubber. United States rubber works 90,000 acres of rubber plantations in Malaya and Indonesia, as well as concessions in Brazil, Venezuela, Colombia, and other Latin American countries. 
It's synthetic rubber and related plants, with the exception of that at the Nangatuck, Connecticut... Nongatuck, Connecticut, sure, are placed like those of its textile division in the southern states of America, where labor is cheaper than in the north. In 1962, there was significant expansion of the company's plastics facilities, under which the production capacity of its crelastic material was increased. You all know crelastic. It's your your favorite. This is described as a tough plastic rubber blend for which growing uses are being found in automobiles and various appliances, all formerly using rubber. Goodyear, among the first 20 companies in the United States, has its own rubber plantation in Indonesia, Costa Rica, Brazil, and Guatemala. I didn't realize Goodyear was that young, was that old. Uh, it operates synthetic rubber plants I, in Houston. I thought Texas. they were the. Uh, I was going to say I thought I thought the country company was founded because uh, Goodyear was the guy that invented the the tire style rubber. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just said among the first the 20 tree. companies of, in the United States. So I don't know if that means like currently they're the first 20, like they're in the top 20, or if they were one of the first ones created. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I, it's got to be later than that then, because like when you cut out the U.S., and I'm pretty sure that it was Goodyear comes from like the mid-19th century, but I'll look it up. Yep. You do. Uh, it operates synthetic rubber plants at Houston, Texas, and Akron, Ohio. A 30% increase was made in the rubber company's facilities for research in rubber, plastics, and other scientific exploration in 1961, for the company has become interested in chemicals and aeronautics. Firestone is a byword in West Africa, where until the recent advent of iron ore exploiting companies, it dominated the economy of Liberia. It is still king of rubber there, and like other rubber giants, gets its rubber also from plantations in Latin America, Latin American countries, as well as Ceylon. It has 58 plants throughout the United States, including four for synthetic rubber and one working on what is described as U.S. national defense. Oh, good. Another 53 plants are spread among around the world, principally in the Western Hemisphere. David, do you want to take over? Uh, yeah. And, and um, real quick, um, I want to mention, too. So, like, we did look up the rubber, right? And so it was 1898 when Goodyear was founded, and it was Charles Goodyear was the inventor of vulcanized rubber, which is what I was talking about, the specific chemical makeup of rubber for for tires. And that's a good example of how intellectual property, this, oh, we own capital, but we don't have to own capital. We just have to know the capital. Intellectual property, and of course, he, he had other capital available or was able to get investments and loans um, to exploit people, is parlayed into siphoning and exploiting and colonizing Africa um, because of intellectual property in the United States, right? That's how ridiculous of a system capitalism can be and how destructive. And and also, this is an important um, such little you know stretch here because we've talked about this before with the beers, right? The, oh, definitely get the natural diamonds, right? Of course, as monopolies, they're going to make sure they squash their competitors um, by taking over these artificial, you know, rubber, artificial materials and still you know, having the natural materials and natural materials are important because um, they get to exploit people. And so their profit margin just grows there compared to synthetic. So it's important to them to corner both markets. But then even if Nat, um, if artificial stops exploitation of global South countries and stops the destruction of natural resources and, um, and comes out just higher quality and easier to reproduce, it doesn't matter. That's not where their profit margin is. And they would rather keep tamping global South countries down to keep up that profit margin because all they see is profit. Yep. Um, hold on a second. Where did we? BF Goodrich Company. 
Gotcha. BF Goodrich Company runs the same form, but if products are influenced by the monopoly producers, Whoa. so the threat of the... Oh, nope, I went wrong page. BF Goodrich runs to the same form... But if anything has wider plastics interests, since it is a producer of vinyl resins under the trademark Gion, and among a long list of subsidiaries and other holdings controls British Gion, in collaboration with the Distillers Company, a combine controlling the whiskey and gin trade of Great Britain. So I did not know BF Goodrich was all into whiskey and gin, but there you go. Um, Diversify, baby. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, diversify. Uh, with over a hundred subsidiary companies engaged in biochemicals, industrial alcohol, plastics, magnesium, alloys, alloys for jet engines, and many other operations. BTR Industries, which controls among other companies, British Tire and Rubber Company, and the International Synthetic Rubber Company, is included in Goodrich's affiliates. Rubber plantations worked by the Goodrich Company are to be found in Liberia, as well as Latin America and Malaya. This company is tied up with AKU, Algamine, Kunzichi, Uni of Holland, in a company that manufactures synthetic rubber for special purposes and controls the important French rubber manufacturers, Kleber Colombes. Like Firestone, the United States rubber, it also has companies in Japan. These and the other main international rubber companies, such as Italian Pirelli, the German companies Continental and Phoenix, the French companies Michelin and Klieger Colombes, and the British Dunlop, more or less compete in the small circle of trust that dominate the world's production of rubber. So basically, every tire company you've ever heard of. Every tire company um, you've ever heard of that's not Bridgestone, and that's only because Japan was a couple years behind everybody, uh, but they they mm-hmm. show up sooner rather than later. Yeah. Uh, they are all engaged in artificial rubber making and manufacture of other synthetics. The furious advertising that goes on in every country of the world to push their individual products leaves no doubt about their keen competition for markets. And all of them have factories as well as a multitude of agents and representatives spread across the globe. This brief review of the rubber monopolies illustrates their interrelations and their domination of both natural and synthetic rubber throughout the world. It becomes increasingly obvious as we delve deeper into the operations of the industrial monopolies that they have the developing countries at a complete disadvantage. As providers of novel basic products for old and new industries on a continually extending scale, the highly industrialized countries are the major investors in and consentiers for the starting materials that are obtained primarily from largely sub-industrialized sources. Among these, we include Australia and the more advanced Canada, which are for all practical purposes financial colonies of American-dominated Western capital. Because of the extremely high capital costs involved in discovering and bringing to perfection new products and their uses, and in establishing plants and factories for their manufacture and processing, the production of these synthetic materials has become the monopoly of a few mammoth international organizations, like Imperial Imperial Chemical Industries, ICI, DuPont de Nemours, Union Carbide, Cartolds, Snea Viscosa, Montecatini, AKU, Unilever, and the tripartite group of the former IG Farben Bayer, Hetch and BASF, Dow Chemical, Texas Gulf Sulphur, Lanza, and Syakim. So, like, half of those we've already talked about. Yeah. And these are all mostly well-known 
large chemical monopolies. I mean, you've heard of of, of most of them, Correct. too. For awful, horrible reasons for most of them. Yes, yes, yes. For awful, horrible, destructive reasons. Uh, the important Japanese offspring of the Mitsui complex, Toyo Rayon Company, is linked to the major American and European giants, DuPont, ICI, and Montecatini, by patent agreements. DuPont having taken a direct interest in the company during the American occupation of Japan and immediately after the war. These giants join forces at certain focal points in the struggle for domination. All the time, they carry on a ferocious competition to secure monopoly in markets and original source material supplies, not only for synthetic productions, but for the metallurgical electronics and nuclear industries that have become part and parcel of their post-war expansion. It is not surprising, therefore, that even a cursory glance at their interests should reveal involvement in African raw materials exploitations, even though their financial shufflings may appear superficially to be very far away from such engagements. That's something we probably don't talk about enough, and I don't think people realize. People are starting to come around to understanding that, like, you know, a tiny sliver of the annual budget is actually, like, helping poor people eat, and over half of... Uh, what they call the, the, I guess, negotiable or malleable budget. Um, but it winds up being over a quarter, like half the budget they vote on every year and half the budget is set, right? Of the, the federal budget. And the half they vote on over half of that is military and it's just ballooning, uh, quickly. Um, and then of course the half they don't vote on that doesn't get included in that has military and, and military aligned and prison and, and et cetera, like that parts of the budget too. Um, but, most of the military budget, which makes up over a quarter of the total budget and over half of that that you know yearly voted on approved budget, um, includes you know new nuclear bombs. And so whenever they're talking about another country and like you know the DPRK or Iran, who's not been making a nuclear bomb, or anyone else having or making nuclear bombs, they're not talking about keeping up. Mind you, like with the exception of Russia, the United States has the most nukes. And unlike Russia, the United States is continually making new ones to replace the old ones and decommission the old ones. So, like, if Russia has, I, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's something like 7,000 versus 6,500, right? And Russia's 7,000 maybe haven't been updated except for, like, you know, 100 of them since, like, you know, 2,000, right? But the United States will decommission 100 and make 110 new Every year, and that's insanely expensive. And so it's not just, you know, Raytheon that's making money off that. It's chemical companies, right? And, and you know, on the uranium and, and things like that. Yeah. When, when Cork Cor- Tools, oh, merger with ICI mooted, was mooted in 1961, it had worldwide repercussions, which is not surprising when its own ramifications are reviewed and ICI's weight in the industrial and commercial markets of the world is recognized. Representing over 30% of the British chemical industry, ICI does 88% of its turnover overseas in some 50 countries. It issued cap- its issued capital is several times larger than the budget of most African states, standing at the end of 1962 at $303,393,910, larger even than that of South Africa, the continent's most industrialized country. 
from chemicals, dye stuffs, paints, pharmaceuticals, fibers, plastics, heavy organic chemicals, explosives, and fertilizers, this vast organization created a new holding company in 1962, Imperial Metal Industries. Dum dum dum. In order, so runs the company's literature, to achieve a greater concentration of effort on a side of the company's business, which is materially different from its main chemical manufacturer activities, namely its non-ferrous metal interests other than aluminum. In the latter field, ICI is linked on a 50-50 basis in Imperial Aluminum with Alcoa, Aluminum Company of America, the empire of the melon interests. Imperial Metal Industries has an interest in the Extended Surface Tube Company. So has Stewart's and Lloyd's, a 60 million pound company working basic and foundry pig iron up to all tubes of all varieties. Through subsidiaries, associated companies, and agents throughout the world, Stewart's and Lloyd's has a stake in all the international markets. Among these are a 70% interest in Stewart and Lloyd's of South Africa Limited, which controls six companies operating in Southwest Africa, Rhodesia, and South Africa itself and a 13% holding in the major steel conversion project in Zambia, the Rhodesian Iron and Steel Company, a subsidiary of Rhodesian Anglo-American Limited, which is controlled by Anglo-American of South Africa. Stewart's and Lloyd's have come up against American monopoly competition in South Africa, where their subsidiary has been negotiating for months with the United States and so-called Brazilian groups for establishing a plant beside its existing one at Veringing, near Johannesburg. The Americans and the Brazilians and their Brazilian vassals were trying to jump the gun by enforcing a clause which would reduce the Stewart and Lloyd's participation from 51% to 25% in the event that the steel industry in the United Kingdom becomes nationalized, or in the opinion of two outside partners, is likely to be nationalized. ICI is assisting the South African government in building up its chemical and armaments industries through ICI, South Africa Limited, and African Explosives and Chemical Industries, in which, a part, in which its partners De Beers. Oh, good. African Explosives yeah. well, we, will be... We supp- talked about... Yeah. Sorry, we no, talked no, about but- De Beers because he cited De Beers being into explosives before a few chapters ago, but people might have forgotten that. So De Beers, this is again where we talked about like horizontal integration, you know, uh, maybe you're into to rubber and gin and vertical integration, right? You're in every step of the way. And De Beers and vertical integration had taken over a bunch of plastics and explosives um, companies and subsidiaries in there. It's deep, deep exploitation of South Africa and Zimbabwe and, and other, you know, modern South African countries. Yep. Um, also, something we, we kind of breezed by, but that's a really nasty trick by Stuart and Lloyd's there, too, um, where they're going to basically be over half partners, right, um, in the steel industry. And if it gets nationalized so that, you know, they're not going to get the profit benefit and the heavy exploitation, they're not going to get out of it, but they're going to cut back to a quarter. Right. So they only want a big piece of that pie if if they get the only fork. Exactly. You know. Uh, baba. African Explosives will be supplying from its constructing company at Salzburg many of the materials for providing polymers to the nylon spinning plant, which is being erected by British nylon spinners at a cost of three million pounds on the site purchased by it in 1963 at Belleville near Cape Town. The Rhodesian subsidiary of African Explosives is behind the proposed $2 billion, $2 million pound fertilizer plant to be built at Livingston, Zambia. With the backing of the government in connection with which the company is constructing another plant at Dorawa, Dor- Dorowa, Rhodesia, for the exploitation of phosphate deposits. 
Consumption of fuel and power and common minerals has jumped phenomenally since the war, and the Western capitalist countries, as well as Japan, have resorted to non-industrialized countries for quickly growing quantities. Before the war, the industrialized countries relied largely on their own reserves of iron ores or on those of other Western sources. Today, the giant iron and steel corporations of Europe, America, and Japan, in addition to their investments in Canada and Australia, are turning more and more for their base materials to Africa, where cheap labor, tax concessions, and supporting government policies have opened up avenues of richer profits from huge untapped resources. M.D. Banghart, vice president of Newmont Banking, Newmont Mining, That's that, those aren't even close. A leading, that's, <laughs> Two that's totally different industries. Not, none of the words are the same. None of the ideas are the same. Oh, boy. Here we go. A leading American holding company with semi-permanent investments in mining and crude oil has said that the American firms could make a greater profit in Africa than from any comparable investment in the United States. Mr. Banghart should know intimately what he is talking about, since Newmont Mining is joined in consortia operating the biggest exploitative undertakings in northern and southern Africa, such as the Keep Copper Company, the Tsusumb Corporation, Palaboro Mining, Sock N.A. Duplome, and Sociedad de Mines de Zelija. It has a 12.1% participation in Cyprus mines, which gives it a vested interest in maintaining Cyprus for the NATO cause. The fact that United States miners earn an average of $2.70 an hour against the less than $0.10 average pay to African miners in South Africa makes it obvious how much super profits are achieved. No wonder Newmont's original investment in Tsum multiplied 20 times in value in the space of three years. The African countries are faced with the need to turn subsistence economies into organisms that will generate viable and improved conditions of living for their populations. However, many African governments, instead of getting together in united action which would stimulate maximum capital accumulation and the construction of a solid overall African economy, are granting concessions for the working of mineral, agricultural, and forestry resources whose purpose is the drawing off of output to sustain and enlarge the industries and economies of the imperialist countries. Not one of the investing syndicates has any intention of founding in any one of these countries an integrated industrial complex that would give impetus to genuine economic growth. Nor are the returns on the export of primary products from mining, agriculture, and forestry likely to provide any important extent the looked-for capital investing in, in the industrial foundation. Again, really deep pan-Africanist, we've got to control the sell, our, stuff ourselves, uh-huh. underscore, right? Decades before Sankara's um, brilliant words um, and decades before uh, we had a comparative of, you know, Chinese investment versus the, you know, Western and United States investment and how China isn't this debt trap imperialism like, like U.S. media makes it out to be. Yeah. Returns to source countries on exports of primary products are petty by comparison with the profits made by the monopoly concessionaries, who are both sellers and processors. A fair example to take in this connection might be Union Minerae. In Katanga, it operates over 34,000 square kilometers of concessions, on which it works three copper mines, one copper mine and zinc mine, five copper and cobalt mines, an iron mine, and a limestone quarry. All of these are linked by road 
and railways owned by the company. First stage concentrates of copper, cobalt, and zinc are milled at six plants. The company owns four electricity generating plants, which work the foundry at Lubumbashi and the electrolysis plants at Jadotville, Shituru, and Kolwezi Luilu. Uh, for the refining of copper and cobalt, of which it pronounced, or which it produced 295,000 tons and 9,000 tons respectively in 1962. The bulk of these copper and cobalt, however, go into concentrate form to the electrolytic refinery of its association. Uh, I forget what we said STE was, um, but Society, oh, it's Society General. Society General's Metallurgique de Haboc in Brussels, which also treats the radiant residues and uranium metals from Katanga, as well as refining the germanium also coming from the Union Minerae production. The zinc is sent forward from Katanga in the form of raw concentrate. The Katanga output is shipped through the Congo by C. de Kemens de Fair Katanga de Lola Leopoldville and overseas by C. Maritime Congolese. Insurance is covered by the C. Congolese de Assurances, the C. Belge de Assurances Maritimes, or the Society Auxiliaire de la Royal Union Colonial Belge, which is just a nice name, a right? The Royal name. Colonial Belge. Belgian Union. Yeah, love that. Um, banking is done through the uh, Society Belge de Bank, the Bank du Congo Belge, the Belgian American Banking Corporation. Staff is flown in and out by Sabina. Union Minerai has holdings in all of them and many others as well. It is the habit of these great monopolies, and we must remember that Union Minerai is the world's third producer of copper and its first of cobalt. To fix prices to suit their ideas of profit, subject to certain swings on the world markets, which frequently they operate and rig. Production at less than full capacity and the holding back of supplies are tactics that are often used. Most copper producers have for the past three years been operating at no more than 85% capacity but are now returning gradually to fuller output. Following the strike at Mufuleria, Mufulira, uh, during the 1963 Rhodesian Selection Trust, ran its plants at a full capacity in order to replenish its stocks, but restricted its sales to 85%. At the end of 1963, there was estimated to be some 300,000 tons a year of idle mine capacity throughout the world as a result of the voluntary restriction of output. The stocks accumulated outside the United States in order to support prices were put at 130,000 to 150,000 tons. The price had been stabilized around 234 pounds a ton for 1962 to 63. Demand for copper having risen, stocks were exhausted by mid-January 1964, and the price rose in the London Metal Exchange. This is not the only industry we see like them withholding production to fix prices either right you see this in like energy all the yeah. time you know that was a big part of that horrible deadly freeze out in texas mm-hmm. um a year ago was withholding to fix prices um that's a big part of this this instigation and push with russia is not just killing Nord Stream 2 for american interests but all american fuel interests not just natural gas um gets helped out by this because it fixes fuel prices higher you know 
Uh, Rhodesian producers, however, stepped up their price to 236 pounds, and from the remarks made by Union Minerais chairman, it would appear that the exchange was forced into line, uh, even though the producers were reducing their output cut back to 10%. Despite the strike and reduced output, turnover and net profits of Rhodesian Selection Trust were higher in 1963 than in 1962, and considerably above those of 1960, when prices were higher. Turnover in 1960 was 31 million pounds, in 1962 was 46 million pounds, and in 1963 was 50 million pounds. Profit after tax was 7.6 million pounds for 1960, 7.7 million for 1962, and 8.2 million for 1963. This was the result of offloading the stocks. We constantly constantly read about the high prices that are earned for copper, tin, zinc, and so forth. What is little understood is that these are the prices for the commodities on the industrial market in their processed forms. The metals leave the countries of their origin, mainly in the primary condition of ores or concentrates, and sometimes in the first stage of transformation, which fetch merely token returns to these countries. The returns are even more paltry when measured against the values that are added the moment the materials are placed on the board, the transportation carrier, at the point of exit. The carrier usually, as we have seen in the case of Union Minerae, being related directly or indirectly with the actual producer. The many more surpluses that accrue in the course of transit from producing country to the foreign transformation centers and throughout the subsequent stages of conversion fall to the concessionary combines and the shipping, transport, banking, insurance, manufacturing, and selling organizations with which in most cases they are linked. As Victor Perlow dramatically summarizes in American imperialism, weak countries without adequate industry to build ships and airplanes must pay tolls to the imperialist imperialist transportation monopolies for the goods they import and export. Countries without adequate financial resources must pay fees to the centers of finance capital for the use of banking facilities and for insurance. Amounts remaining behind in the producing countries in the form of wages are sadly fractional. Over 50% of the Congo's national income went regularly to European residents and foreign firms. The rest remained to be distributed over the various sectors of the economy. It is not surprising that the territory's 14 million inhabitants live in, ex- in the extremist poverty. In Gabon, one-third of the income goes to the non-African population. Two-fifths of Liberia's total income accrues to foreign firms. UN report ECN 14-246, January 7th, 1964. And when independent African countries attempt to establish a certain recidification by leveling taxes on company profits, they draw resentment that is echoed in dire warnings in the imperialist press that they will stifle foreign investment if they continue such encroachments upon expatriate rights. Oh, have we heard that before? Yeah, and let's, that's something we see all the time, right? Don't, you know, they, if you posit yourself from exploiting and beating up these countries as you must be the hand that feeds because you force their dependence, then you get to scream at them for biting the hand that feeds when they go, hey, why are you treating us like shit? And that, you know, and, and nothing more, right? Like there's, you're, they're walking on eggshells while being exploited. Um, this has been a pretty content rich chapter so far as far as theory because this goes into the underdevelopment and something that that gets kind of undernoticed you know not only are the uh, material resources exploited and drawn out and they're drawn out largely by you know these conglomerates that exist or um, are from other countries right and go out and say you know draw out 
of the cobalt or whatever out of the mines, right? And underpay workers themselves. But even if, say, these companies are, you know, 50% invested or 20% invested or whatever, and there's some kind of national group just to sell this stuff, if you don't have the boats and the ships and things like that, just to sell it, you have to have them transport it. Well, there's transportation markup, right? Because they're, they're not going to train. And so you don't, you have to negotiate that and they negotiate you down for so, so low that let's say, you know, you're pricing something at two bucks a pound and then they put it on a ship and bang, it's four bucks a pound. But you don't see that you see half of that. Exactly. Right? And then they go produce it and then they sell it back to you in an import and then they're charging you for the import and then they're charging you for insurance because God knows what if it's just stolen, you know, and then they're charging you because they'll only work in their own currency. They force you into their currency and then they charge you for banking with them so that you can use their currency. Mm-hmm. It's just a grotesque cycle of exploitation. Ashanti hit by gun attacks, shouted a paragraph headline in the London City Journal, dated the 28th of January, 1964, and set forth figures to show that Ghana government taxation had cut Ashanti Goldfield's 1962 to 63 profits from 1.1 million to 609,000 pounds. Nevertheless, the company was still able to declare a total dividend of 37.5%, a fall obviously from the 50% on an over that had been kept up for several previous years, but still a whacking return on an original capital of 250,000 pounds, which had been built up to his present 3 million pound reserve from reserves out of past and current profits. That the company was able to pay the dividend is proof of the nicely cushioned reserves that have been accumulated over a period of operations, in addition to what has been drawn back into capital. Diamonds are bringing some extra revenue to the West African countries out of new selling arrangements, which are taking some of the profit that formerly went to CAST, Consolidated African Selection Trust, and it's De Beers principles. Ghana has its own diamond market and a government marketing board, which takes the commission, which used to go to the middlemen acting for De Beers. In Sierra Leone, CAST profits were higher, but a service fee paid to the government board under protest and higher production costs cut, cut them somewhat. Nevertheless, CAST was able to declare a final dividend that left the total dividend for the year 1962-63 unchanged at 3S per 6D on a 5S share, 70%. So I guess that's three shillings, six whatever's less than a shilling on a five shilling share, 70%, of which there were 18,198,654 issued and paid up out of 20 million authorized. This issued capital amounting to four point uh, four point five million pounds, ten sterling, was achieved in less than twenty years out of reserves made from an original capital of two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Furthermore, stocks of diamonds held by the group at the end of the working year had an estimated value of six million pounds. Further profits are forced out of Africa in the form of the inflated cost of finished goods, equipment, and services she is forced to buy from the monopoly sources that extract the prime materials. This is the big squeeze in which Africa is caught, one that grew tighter from the eve of the First World War. It was estimated by United Nations experts that the dependent countries had to pay 2.5 to 3 billion U.S. dollars more for their imports of manufactured goods in 1947 than they would have had to pay if its price ratios were the same as in 1913. 
for the period from 1950 to 61, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN, the index of returns for primary materials fell from 97 to 91, 70 for cocoa, coffee, and tea, while that for manufactured goods rose from 86 to 110. For steel, which is an indispensable commodity on an increasing scale for developing countries, it reaches the very much higher figure of 134. In terms of exchanges between primary producing countries and the exporters of manufactured goods, there has been a decline in 10 years from 113 to 82 to the disadvantage of the former. The value of Ghana's exports in 1962 was the same as that for exports in 1961, but the volume had increased by about 6%. The value of imports in 62 was reduced by 16%, but the volume fell by only 14%. In the Congo Congo Republic, Brazzaville, while 1962 saw an increase of 77% in exports over 61 and imports imports declined by 15%, the value of the exports hardly covered half the value of the imports. And mind you, all of those figures in that last paragraph were relative, too. So, like, these are indexes. These are, you know, when it said exports on the dependent countries uh, was 2 to 3 point, or 2.5 to 3 billion more um, based on price ratio. You know, that's accounting for inflation and things like that. That's indexed across the country. So, basically, like, compared to 1913, you know, the, the, the pound of flesh just to, just to eat in Africa was a couple pounds of flesh, you know. Exactly. There was no inflation there, right? That that was that was indexed, and and it was just far more exploited exploitative. Yep. Um. That being said, we are moving on to chapter eighteen: the mechanisms of neocolonialism. David, do you want to start us off? Sure. In order to halt, as if those last few paragraphs weren't the mechanisms of neocolonialism, so this is going to be rich with something. Uh, In order to halt foreign interference in the affairs of developing countries, it is necessary to study, understand, expose, and actively combat neocolonialism in whatever guise it may appear. Again, we'll repeat, in order to halt foreign interference in the affairs of developing countries, it is necessary to study, to understand, to expose, and to actively combat neocolonialism in whatever guise it may appear. Mm -hmm. For the methods of neocolonialists are subtle and varied. They operate not only in the economic field, but also in the political, religious, ideological, and cultural spheres. Faced with the militant peoples of the ex-colonial territories in Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean and Latin America, imperialism simply switches tactics. Without a qualm, it dispenses with its flags and even certain of its more hated expatriate officials. This means, so it claims, that it is giving independence to its former subjects, to be followed by aid for their development. There are scare quotes on giving and aid, um, as there should be. Uh, Under cover of such phrases, however, it is devi- it devises innumerable ways to accomplish objectives, formerly achieved by naked colonialism. It is the sum total of these modern attempts to perpetuate colonialism, while at the same time make- talking about freedom, which has come to be known as neocolonialism. Foremost among the neocolonialists is the United States, which has long exercised its power in Latin America. Fumblingly at first, she turned towards Europe, and then with more certainty after World War II, when most countries of that continent were indebted to her. Since then, with methodological thoroughness and touching attention to detail, the Pentagon has set about consolidating its ascendancy, evidence of which can be seen all around the world. 
Who really rules in such places as Great Britain, West Germany, Japan, Spain, Portugal, or Italy? If General de Gaulle was defecting from U.S. monopoly control, what interpretation can be placed on his experiments in the Sahara Desert, his paratroopers in Gabon, or his trips to Cambodia and Latin America? Lurking behind such questions are the extended tentacles of the Wall Street octopus. It is, and its suction cups and muscular strength are provided by the phenomenon dubbed the invisible government, arising from Wall Street's connection with the Pentagon and various intelligent services. I quote, The invisible government is a loose, amorphous grouping of individuals and agencies drawn from many parts of the visible government. It is not limited to the Central Intelligence Agency, although the CIA is at its heart, nor is it confirmed to the nine other agencies which comprise what is known as the intelligence community, the National Security Council, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, Army Intelligence, Navy Intelligence, and Research, the Atomic Energy Commission, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The invisible government includes also many other units and agencies as well as individuals that appear outwardly to be normal of the conventional government. It even encompasses business firms and institutions that are seemingly private. To an extent that is only beginning to be perceived, the shadow government is shaving the lives of 190 million Americans. It's a lot more now. uh, And in Informed citizen might come to suspect that the foreign policy of the United States often works publicly in one direction and secretly through the invisible government in just the opposite direction. The invisible government is a relatively new institution. It came into being as a result of two related factors. The rise of the United States after World War II to the position of preeminent world power and the challenge to that power by Soviet communism. By 1964, the intelligence network had grown into a massive hidden apparatus, secretly employing about 200,000 persons and spending billions of dollars a year. Now, he said, and I quote, and I don't know what he's quoting. He's quoting a book called The Invisible Government by, I think, Tom Brooks and somebody else. So it was a book written in 1964 called The Invisible Government. And and, and since then, I mean, of course, you know, that was long before, you know, stuff like the NED was created under Reagan to explicitly hide that it was CIA and then the CIA gained back its attention and and all sorts of other things. So, I mean, just the idea and all it's done is expand since then and not have to face down any Soviets anymore. Exactly. Here from the very citadel of neocolonialism is a description of the apparatus which now directs all other Western intelligence setups either by persuasion or by force. Results were achieved in Algeria during the April 1961 plot of the anti-De Gaulle generals, as also in Guatemala, Iraq, Iran, Suez, and the famous U-2 spy intrusion of Soviet airspace, which wrecked the approaching summit. Then in West Germany, and again in East Germany, in the riots of 1953, in Hungary's abortive crisis of 1959, Poland's of September 1956, and in Korea, Burma, Formosa, Laos... Cambodia and South Vietnam. They are evident in the trouble in Congo, Leopoldville, which began with Lumumba's murder and continues till now in events in Cuba, Turkey, Cyprus, Greece, and in other places too numerous to catalog completely. And with what aim have these innumerable incidents occurred? The general objective has been mentioned to achieve colonialism, in fact, while preaching independence. On the economic front, a strong factor favoring Western monopolies and acting against the developing world is international capital's control of the world market, as well as the prices of commodities bought and sold there. 
1951 to 1961 without taking oil into consideration, the general level of prices for primary products fell by 33.1%, while prices of manufactured goods rose 3.5%, within which machinery and equipment prices rose 31.3%. In that same decade, this caused a loss to the Asian, African, and Latin American countries using 1951 prices as a basis of some $41.4 million. In the same period, while the volume of exports from these countries rose, their earnings in foreign exchange that was rose without from, taking from oil such exports decreased. We, we all know... Yeah, yeah, we all know yeah, which that the black gold is the ultimate consideration gold for the last several decades of the world. Exactly. Another technique of neocolonialism is the use of high in- rates of interest. Figures from the World Bank for 1962 showed that 71 Asian, African, and Latin American countries owed foreign debts of some $27 million, on which they paid an interest and service charges some $5,000 5, 5 million. million. Yeah. So two, they owe twenty seven billion. They owe twenty seven billion, and they paid yeah. five million in interest and service charges. Since then, such foreign debts have been estimated as more than thirty million pounds, or thirty billion pounds in these areas. I, I, why did they switch from pounds know. to dollars just then, right there, right in that moment know, when we were already talking about dollars? Why are you doing this to me, so, Akuma? You know. He's back to the thousand millions and he's back to switching currencies midstream. In 1961, the interest rates on almost three quarters of the loans offered by the major imperialist powers amounted to more than 5%, in some cases, and up to 7 or 8%, while the call in periods of such loans have been burdensomely short. While capital worth 30 billion was exported to some 56 developing countries between 1956 and 1962, it is estimated that interest and profit alone extracted on this sum from the debtor countries amounted to more than 15 million 15 billion dollar uh, pounds. This method of penetration by economic aid recently soared into prominence when a number of countries began rejecting it. Ceylon, Indonesia, and Cambodia are among those who have turned it down. Such aid is estimated on the annual average to have amounted to 2.6 billion between no yes 2.6 billion between 1951 and 55 4.07 million between 1956 and 1959 4.07 billion god damn it and 6 billion between 1960 and 1962 but the average sums taken out of the aided countries by such donors in a sample year, 1961, are estimated to amount to $5 billion in profits and $1 billion in interest and $5.8 billion from non-equivalent exchange, or a total of $11.8 billion extracted against $6 billion put in. Thus, aid turns out to be another means of exploitation, a modern method of capital export under a more cosmetic name. David, start reading, because my... I was going to say, why don't don't you take a thousand million second break? Yeah, fuck that Uh, noise. But that said, importantly, from that last paragraph, so we're not distracted by it, right? They were pouring in, you know, they were were saying countries owe like 30 billion, and they're pouring in anywhere from 2.6 to 4 to 6 billion in, and they were getting a 11.6 11.6 billion out. And so they were making 6 billion in 3 years in profit on aid. Yeah. If you're making more than half or more than your 100% profit, that's not aid. Yeah. It's just not. No. Um 
still other neocolonialist trap on the economic front has come to be known as multilateral aid through international organizations. The International Monetary Fund, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, known as the World Bank, and the International Finance Corporation and the International Development Corporation are examples all significantly having U.S. capital as their major backing. Thank you, Nkrumah, for being explicit. Again, it is, yeah. it's the World Bank and the IMF. It just, it just is. Mm-hmm. Um, formal name for the World Bank is he, is he laid out here, International Bank for Reconstruction Development. Um, let's see. These agencies have a habit of forcing would-be borrowers to submit to various offensive conditions, such as supplying information about their economies, submitting their policy and plans to review by the World Bank, and accepting agency supervision of the use of their loans. As for the alleged development between 1960 and mid-1963, the International Development Association promised a total of 500 million to applicants of which only 70 million were actually received in more recent years as pointed out by the monitor in the times july 1965 there's been a substantial increase in communist technical and economic aid activities in developing countries during 1964 the total amount of assistance operated was approximately 600 million pounds this was almost a third of the total communist aid given during the previous decade the Middle East received about 40% of the total, Asia 36%, Africa 22%, and Latin America the rest. Increased Chinese activity was responsible to some extent for the larger amount of aid offered in 1964, though China cr- contributed only a quarter of the total aid committed. The Soviet Union provided half, and the Eastern European countries uh, a quarter. So again, I mean, unfortunately... You know, you're not seeing the Soviet Union around and these Eastern European bloc around to provide the three quarters of the aid they had at the time. But this is nothing new to China. And this is comparatively a very different character. This is, my God, read people this chapter if they believe the, the, the China debt trap shit. Just read them this chapter. <laughs> this is from an African leader. <laughs> Uh, Although aid from socialist countries still falls far short of that offered from the West, it is often more impressive since it is swift and flexible and interest rates on communist loans are only about 2% compared with 5-6% to charge on loans from Western countries. Nor is the whole story of aid contained in figures, for there are conditions which hedge it around. The conclusion of commerce and navigation treaties, agreements for economic cooperation, the right to meddle in internal finances, including currency and foreign exchange, to lower trade barriers in favor of the donor country's goods and capital. Again, I repeat, to lower trade barriers in in uh, favor of the donor country's goods and capital, to protect the interests of private investments, determination of how funds are to be used, forcing the recipient to set up counterpart funds to supply raw materials to the donor, and to use such funds, a majority of it, in fact, to buy goods from the donor nation. Again, to supply raw materials and to use such funds to buy goods from the donor nation. Yep. These conditions apply to industry, commerce, agriculture, shipping, and insurance, apart from others which are political and military. So-called invisible trade furnishes the Western monopolies with yet another means of economic penetration. Over 90% of the world ocean shipping is controlled by the imperialist countries. They control shipping rates, and between 1951 and 61, they increase them some 
five times in a total rise of about 60%. The upward trend continuing. Thus, net annual freight expenses incurred by Asia, Africa, and Latin America amount to no less than an estimated $1.6 billion. This is over and above all other profits and interest payments. As for insurance payments, in 1961 alone, these amounted to an unfavorable balance in Asia, Africa, and Latin America of some additional $370 million. Having waded through all this, however, we have begun to understand only the basic methods of neocolonialism. The full extent of its in- inventiveness is far from exhausted. And we will begin exhausting that next week, because that is where we are going to end for this week. That being said, uh, we are very quickly approaching the end, gang. Uh, we have about half this chapter to go, um, which is a little bit lengthier of a chapter that'll probably take the whole next episode or most of it. Um, yeah. and then we hit conclusion. Um, so it is, we are, we are very close to seeing the end here. Uh, everybody getting ready. Uh, I think, I don't know if we've formally announced it, but we can start formally announcing it. I guess teasing it out now. Uh, mm-hmm. next work is going to be Blood in My Eye by George Jackson. Uh, yes. and so that will be where we are heading directly next. Um, another shorter work that we can hopefully get through, uh, in a, in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, it, I mean, again, <laughs> neocolonialism is a fairly reasonable work and it's still going to take us, uh, the better part of six months. But, uh, that's a lot better than two years for, for what we've been, what we did on Black Reconstruction. So I'll take yeah. another, another shorter, shorter style work before we figure out what's coming up down the pipe. But that will be next. Um, if you want to engage with things you think we should be reading or what we should read after Blood in My Eye um, or anything like that, there are a number of different ways you can reach out to us with those sorts of suggestions. Uh, first of which is to email us. Uh, you can email us directly, uh, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also reach out to us on Twitter. We are on Twitter at Mark's Madness Pod. DMs are open. You can hit us up in there if you need to. Uh, and if you're on our Twitter and go to our bio, you'll see a link to our Discord server. The Mark's Madness Discord is where I spend most of my time and David comes when he is bat signaled or when World War III breaks out. Uh, because David, David was engaged a lot more in, uh, in Discord the last couple days. Uh, or, or this was a couple weeks ago when the inv- full invasion of Ukraine began. Began. uh yeah so again when when the times call for david david rises to the occasion uh that being said it's just a good community it's a good place especially in times like these where things can be confusing and isolating and and it, it's nice to have a community of people you can go to that are of similar mind that you don't have to dance around the issues on and that you can talk about these kind of events and and the implications and 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 your feelings around it in a, in a safe and supportive place um that's what uh, our discord server is and i am very proud of it and very happy to be a part of it uh that being said david disclaim us Okay, um, assuming I haven't been put on too much of a pedestal when he talks about Discord before this disclaimer, um, Nathan came up to me one day when we started this podcast, and he was like, you know, I want to read Capital, and that's the kind of work you read in a group. You should read theory and history in a group so you can understand the context, so that you can make sure you're remembering the details by discussing it and reviewing it, and so that you can make sure you know, you're fully understanding it and getting other perspectives and, and making sure you're soaking it in. Um, and so we started our little group of two, and we started recording it, and after we had enough recordings, we thought, you know what, because um, we were recording just in case, hoping to have a group of more than two, and we thought, you know what, we'll go forward with this. And ever since then, um, we've been out 
out there and and there's thousands more of you joining with us which we're ecstatic about okay and our vision from the beginning having you along with us is that hopefully you're in some kind of group some kind of party um doing some kind of organizing and with your political education group your reading group whatever you may call it you guys are reading these works along with us um and especially you know very very pertinent works like this um let's say it's working a little differently let's say your group's working on some shorter works or just some different works um or some works you know more applicable to certain projects you're organizing around right now uh and you're just reading these works on your own hopefully we can be your reading group and we can give you that input we can give you that pause and perspective we can give you the context um all of those things that a reading group gives and let's say that's not happening let's say you know it's either a book that we summarize more like we did you know back in capital and state and rev and stuff uh or it's a work we read word for word kind of more like an enhanced ebook like this book uh whatever it is we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want these works out there guiding your actions and when you take theory and put it into revolutionary action that's a phenomenon called praxis of course by definition praxis can't exist without theory since it is theory and action and without that praxis the theory is completely useless they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip amen as always that being said this has been mark's madness pod we read books my name is nathan my name's david and we will talk to y'all next week bye, bye.